Shalom, this is Reverend John Ferret, and we are now in Lesson 58 in the series, The Gospel According to Moses, in the book of Genesis. This is the last lesson that we're going to be doing on the eulogy of Abraham. It started in Lesson 56 and 57, and we're now in 58. Once again, we're going to see some amazing direct connections to Jesus, to his assembly, his church, and us. It's just like he taught in John 5.39, that all scripture testifies of him. Now, I'm going to start with a rabbinic midrash. Now, a midrash according to Jewish sources, is a way rabbis are going to glean insights from God's Word. An insight might be an unanswered question with regards to the Torah, uh, something that the Torah does not cover. Or they may be looking at a specific story, a specific event, in the Torah, and the rabbis will make commentary specifically on it. Now, sometimes these midrashim are very troubling, to say the least. I'm going to give you just a couple examples. In Genesis 25, which we're dealing with right now, because we're dealing with Abraham's death, it talks about the fact that Abraham married Keturah. Now, one of the great Torah commentators in the Middle Ages by the name of Rashi, he said Keturah was actually Hagar. He was actually marrying Hagar, Abraham, uh, Abraham's wife's, Sarah's Egyptian maidservant. And he goes into his explanation because he said Keturah is an Aramaic word that basically means uh, or relates to the fact that Hagar is now become chaste and pure. And he says it. It's an Aramaic word, which helps us understand this verse. The problem is this. Aramaic is a language that first appears in history in 1100 B.C., or actually the 11th century B.C. That's a thousand years after Abraham. This is really troubling, and it shows Rashi is making a huge, a huge error with regards to saying that Keturah is an Aramaic word that Moses actually used in the Torah a thousand years ago. Another one, a Midrash, is the rabbis say that Passover, this goes into Leviticus 23, Passover is going to be celebrated for eight days, not seven. Especially outside of Israel. And they said this is related to the moon. To determine when Passover is going to be, you need to see the new moon. Well, if you're outside of Israel and you have weather conditions where you cannot see the new moon, at least then we have this extra day 
to kind of make sure that if there was an error or a mistake in determining when the new moon is or the full moon, uh, this would cover it and everything would be okay. But the Word of God doesn't say that. The Torah doesn't say that. The rabbis made something up. So in some cases we see that rabbinic commentary is putting words in the Bible's mouth and it's saying things that it doesn't say. And we have to be careful. Just because a rabbi says something, it doesn't mean it's true. And there's many Christians, especially in the Messianic movement, who have fallen into this trap. And especially when they're in places that do not pay attention to real history and real archaeology. Now, you've heard me teach on this before. Now, it doesn't mean I'm against rabbinic views. No way. Many are great scholars, and many teach us truths about God's Word. The key is we must be discerning. We're not practicing rabbinic Judaism. Now, in rabbinic Judaism, practiced today, especially among the Orthodox, rabbinic commentary that is found in the Talmud is treated as equal to the Bible. Now, for us as Christians, we say, wait a minute, this is something we can't deal with. That rabbi's comments trump the Bible or add to the Bible, and the Talmud is equal to God's Word? So, as I've said, some contradict the very words of God, some add to what the Bible says. Now, with that said, we are going to deal with the Midrash, a rabbinic teaching, but this one, again, it's and it's quite interesting. It's probably not true, but it's an interesting view. I think it's based upon Isaiah 51, verses 1 through 2. You can look up those verses. And as we hear it, it may remind us, remind us of an event in Jesus' life. It happened at Caesarea Philippi in northern Israel. It's a pagan Roman-style city about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus takes his 12 there. You can read about it in Matthew 16, verses 13 through 28. Now you're going to see some amazing connections from Abraham to Yeshua to ourselves. Indeed, we saw this in Lessons 56 and 57 and now in 58 as we continue with this eulogy of Abraham. We must agree his life demonstrates why God picked him. And in Abraham, we can all agree he's a picture of what Adonai wants, <laughs> wants us to be. It's like Paul teaches, Abraham is our spiritual father by faith. And we're to be like our spiritual father. We're in Genesis 15, 6. Abraham trusted God, relied on God, depended upon him. And God totally counted it as righteousness. So too for us. Let's abide and trust and rely on Jesus to also be called his righteous. So come, let's go study.
There was a king who desired to build and lay foundations. He dug constantly deeper but found only a swamp. At last he dug and found Petra. Petra. Wait a minute. Isn't that in the New Testament? Yeah. By the way, what I'm reading to you is a translation directly from the Hebrew. And they use the word Petra. Hang on. He said, on this spot I shall build and lay foundations. So the Holy One, blessed be He, meaning God, desired to create the world. But sitting and meditating upon the generations of Enoch and of the flood, He said, how shall I create the world, seeing that those wicked men who only provoke Me? Oh my goodness. But as soon as God perceived that there would arise an Abraham, He said, behold, I have found a Petra upon which to build and lay foundations of the world. Therefore, Abraham was called the rock. Whoa. Now, let me do this. When you study Jewish literature, and I'm talking the Talmud, I'm talking the Midrash, I'm talking the Mishnah, which we don't do, what we find is two Greek words that were brought in from the Greek into Hebrew and are used as if they were Hebrew. Now this happens in English, by the way. Let me give you three words that are French that you use as if they're English. Okay, here's three French words that are French. One of them is détente. That's French. Or gaffe. Okay. In other words, a statement that you make to belittle somebody, a gaffe, or cliché. We use those as if they're English, and we understand exactly what they mean. You see what I'm saying? We do the same thing. So does the rabbis. And so they take borrowed words from the Greek, and they're using them in Hebrew as if they were Hebrew. Amazing. Matter of fact, there was in uh, the second in the second century A.D. There was a Jewish rabbi whose last name he was Rabbi Jose Petros. Petros. And so, wait a minute, Petra Petros. That's used in the New Testament. Now, understanding that, David Biven of Jerusalem Perspective, the school of the Synoptic Gospels and again try to reconnect to our Jewish roots, they have already proven that Petra and Petros are Greek words that have been borrowed, okay, by Hebrew teachers and the rabbis and brought into Hebrew. So what does Jesus say in Matthew 16, 18? In Matthew 16, 18, we read in Matthew 16, 18, I'm reading from the ESV study Bible here, uh, 16, 18, and I tell you, you are Peter. doesn't say that. Okay, and actually in Greek it says, Thou art Petra. Okay, and on this Petros, okay, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock, Thou art Petra, and upon this Petros I will build my church, and the gates of hell should not prevail against it. Now the interesting thing is, in those days, those two Greek words were used as if they were Hebrew. Just like cliche, just like detente. We have the proof. They're loan words from the Greek that are brought in. And it's very interesting. Is there a connection between what Jesus is saying and Abraham? Hmm. Perhaps. 
Do you understand that Jesus says, I'm, and later on he says, thou art Petra, but upon this rock I will build my church. He's going to build his church on what? On a foundation. What do you build on a foundation? What was the Midrash about in the Middle Ages? All right. The question for scholars today, okay, is that understanding of the Midrash, the story, the allegory, okay, that was available in the Middle Ages, was that also something that was actually taught in Jesus' day? We don't know. However, the connections between Jesus' words and the fact that God is going to build on a foundation, a rock, and Petra is used, amazing connections. Now I want you to consider Isaiah 51, 1 through 2. Matter of fact, I can recite it because it's one of my favorite verses in the world. Isaiah 51, verses 1 through 2. I'm quoting from the New American Standard. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness. You who fear the Lord. Look to the rock from which you are cut and the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, your mother, who gave birth to you in pain. When he was but one, I called him. And then I blessed him, and I multiplied him. That's your verse, ladies and gentlemen. The New Testament says, you're children of Abraham. That's your verse. He multiplied <laughs> the blessing. And through Jesus, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Now, what's interesting is, when you look at Isaiah 51, verse 1, and Isaiah 51, verse 2, you have, look to the rock, look to the quarry. Next verse, look to Abraham, look to Sarah. Okay? Now, it's fascinating in here, look to the rock from which you were cut. In other words, you're not the rock, you're a piece of the rock. Sounds like a, boy, a piece of the rock. I like that. That'd be good for a commercial, okay? You're a piece of the rock. And out of the quarry, out of a woman comes birth, yes? Because it says, out of the quarry you were brought it's very interesting. Is that what Isaiah is trying to get at? We don't know. The book of Isaiah is silent. But it's a fascinating picture. Verse 1 and verse 2. The rock to Abraham, the quarry to Sarah. It is possible that because of Isaiah 51, 1 through 2, that there was a connection in Jesus' day because they had the book of Isaiah. It's possible. Is this how the disciples understood it? The faith of Abraham is like a rock. The foundation, this is what we need. But it, isn't this fascinating when we take a look at the characteristics of Abraham and the characteristics of a disciple? Abraham hated Isaac. Now, he didn't hate Isaac, but he put him in the second place because he loved God more. And he obeyed God and he would sacrifice his son. God says it, he's going to do it, period. And what does Jesus say? Hate your mother, hate your father, hate your parents, hate your wife, hate even your own life. Not hate, sane, okay? But it means love less. Put it in the second place. And then this. Faith of Abraham, the rock, the foundation of those who are truly part of the kingdom of God. To be truly Talmudim, disciples of Yeshua. And we want to be a piece of the rock. Characteristics of Abraham. 
Now, let's stop there for a second. These are interesting questions with no answers. Now, you would say, boy, my, my opinion is, I think they're talking about Abraham. That's my opinion. And we could argue about that till the cars come home because opinion's opinion, right? That's all it is. We don't have any biblical statements that this is exactly what it was. But let's put that aside because I want to do one other thing. You've heard me say this before. If you don't know the geography of Israel, you have no idea what's going on in the Bible. This is a Jewish book about a specific land, a specific people, specific animals, specific plants, and everything. We've already talked about this in Genesis. I can't remember what chapter it was. Remember, those of you that have been here in session one and session two, Abraham planted a tamarisk tree. Well, what the heck is a tamarisk tree? And then you study the tamarisk tree, and then you see why. Okay, so let's do this. Where does Jesus say this stuff? Where is he telling Peter? Thou art Petra, but upon this Petros I will build my church. When we go to Matthew 16, verses 13 to 18, we get the exact location immediately. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, oops, stop, there it is. We know where that is. Do you? Okay, where is the district of Caesarea Philippi? Well, if you knew Israel, it's in the northernmost. I know there's some people that will be going to Israel soon, and when they go to Israel soon, uh, I know they'll be at Caesarea Philippi. And at Caesarea Philippi, you'll be able to walk up to the fence at Lebanon and realize that as you look at all the mountains and hills in front of you, Hamas has a whole bunch of rockets up there pointed at Israel. You're at, I mean, you're at, this is the place, okay? It's kind of an eerie feeling to be there. So, who do people say that I am? Son of man is, and they say, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Petra, you are Peter, and upon this Petros, upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, where is he? He's at Caesarea Philippi. What in the heck is that? It's a major pagan cult site that goes back. It's, pre, it's pre-Abraham. So when Abraham comes to the land the first time, this pagan cult site was already in operation. There is a gigantic cliff there. I'm going to say three stories at least. And when you're facing the cliff, okay, in those days they had a big cave and with that cave, there was a, a stream, okay, a spring of water that is one of the tributaries or one of the sources of the Jordan. If not anymore, they've got it blocked off. Things have changed by that. And in Jesus' day, it was the place where they worshiped Pan, okay? He's the half goat, half man god, okay? And he plays around with his friends called the nymphs, okay? Oh, anyway, but it says that in Jesus' day, when they worship Pan, that Pan would go into the cave, the gates of Hades, okay, translated into Christianity, gates of hell, doesn't say that. This is Greek, gates of Hades. That's where all the pagan gods live. But in Deuteronomy, God says through Moses that don't you understand that the gods that you're worshiping are demons? And then we would say, huh, gates of Hades, pagan gods, demons, so this must be hell. Okay, makes sense to me. Okay, so Pan goes down there. 
in the fall, okay, because now the rainy seasons are going to happen, and he comes out in the spring, and he says he's resurrected. He comes back to life. So that's what's going on. During Jesus' day, also, uh, Herod Philip, not Herod Philip, excuse me, one of Herod's sons, Philip. There's another one called Herod Philip. I don't want to get them confused. But Philip was a tetrarch along with um, uh, Archelaus and um, Antipas. Okay? They broke up the kingdom after Herod died into three. So he's a tetrarch. Philip was one of them. And he built a city there. Okay? And he named it Caesarea Philippi in honor of himself and in honor of Caesar. Just like his brother built Tiberius. Okay? Tiberius was in the honor of the, of the emperor, Tiberius. Today, the place is called Banias with a B. The reason being is it's actually Panias. Okay? That's its actual name, Pan, Panias. Uh, Arabs cannot pronounce P in speaking Arabic. Okay? So they cannot pronounce P, so they pronounce P as a B. So that's why it's called Banias, because Arabs can't pronounce it correctly. So anyway, that's interesting. So like I said... It's a Roman-style pagan city that's right below the cliff. Jesus comes to that area, and like I said, it's that pagan cult center. There's no devout religious Jews that come here. None. I mean, there's probably Jews that come there if they're involved in pagan worship and so on. And the rituals, I will not go through this at all, but they were highly sexual and very bizarre. I have to take you there to actually show you what was going on. I will not do that for the sake of uh, being moral, okay? The question is, Jesus goes there? Huh? This makes no sense. Matthew 16, 18. What's fascinating is Jesus says he's there. And he says, upon this rock, I will build my church. Huh? If you understand this site, there's a gigantic rock, the cliff, right? And there's a cave, the gates of Hades. And what does Jesus say to them? They're there. Upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, because that's what it says exactly in the Greek, will not prevail against it. He's at that site. What's going on? Now, in the Greek, where it talks about... Now, we know the church is not a building. Yes? It's us. Not a building. He never said it. It's an ecclesia. It's an assembly. It's a congregation. It's a synagogue. Synagogue is a, a meeting place. Okay? Synagogue is not a building. In Jesus' day, a synagogue was a meeting place. It was a meeting place of the people. Okay? Now it's become to mean a building. And many times, see, what church do you go to? What building do you go to? Okay? And really, ecclesia is an assembly of people. So he says, I'm going to build my church. And what's very interesting is to study the Greek word there. The Greek word is okadameo, okadameo. And the Strong's number is G3618. And it can mean to build or construct, but it also can mean to restore, to rebuild, to renew. This is the God of the universe, and he's looking at what mankind has done? They have gone into the worship of idols and pagan gods. And what is Jesus saying? Enough! This is going to be gone. I'm going to restore that which mankind has 
completely aborted. Could that's what he meant. To me, understanding the Greek gives me a deeper aspect of what's happening here. He's not going to build his church to Syria for Philippi. I've actually had people come to say when I taught this, did he have to build a church at Caesarea Philippi? No, that's not the point. Okay, the point, it's a picture. His assembly, his church, his disciples are going to come upon the ungodly, the religious worldviews, the philosophies, and defeat them. The cave, notice it says the gates of Hades, the gates of hell. When you understand the ancient culture, gates are defensive. When you go all the way, you always study the gates of a city, they're always defensive. They're the weakest part of the wall. Why? Because there's a hole in the wall. And they're normally the strongest defendant. It's a defensive place. It's not an offensive place. And guess what? What does Jesus say? The gates of Hades will not prevail against what? His assembly of his people. Not a building, not the organization. Then Jesus never meant that. He meant us. Guess what? We're going in. The gates of hell will not prevail for us going. We're going in. You get, are you ready to get out of the boat? Oh, I find it interesting. In the ancient Near East, you find one religious building built on top of another religious building, built on top of another religious building because they consider the site sacred. So, for instance, you go to Capernaum. There's a synagogue, the white synagogue, built probably in the 5th century, maybe 6th century A.D., on top of Jesus' synagogue because they found that synagogue. One synagogue on top of another. Was there another synagogue below that? We don't know. They've never done the excavations. In Ephesus, if you go to Ephesus, it's the Temple of Artemis. The Temple of Artemis is built on another temple, which is built on a tree shrine. Because the tree shrine is the sacred piece. Okay? So again, you have pagan temples built on a sacred site. Now this site is considered sacred, but as God, he's saying, (laughs) is he going to come against the ungodly and build over it? I I find that interesting. I'm not sure. We're storming the gates, you guys. We're going in. And like I said, are you ready? Do you have your armor on? Check it out. Ephesians 6. Are you ready to get out of the boat? But there's more. Did the disciples connect the rock to Abraham? Yeshua's words to build. The Midrash that we talked about, Yalkut Shemoni, from the Middle Ages. Perhaps, perhaps, Something they knew about in Jesus' day. Amazing parallels. Building on the foundation, the rock, the foundation, the faith of Abraham. Do we have to pick one or the other? In other words, does the rock represent Abraham or does the rock represent this pagan cultic place? Maybe we don't have to pick one or the other. This is God. See, we scholastic scholarly people want one answer god is saying they're all pictures of the same thing different views the 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 rabbis say this every text of scripture is a diamond and each diamond has a face on it a facet it has one interpretation but each facet is another application i like that And maybe it's the same way about the rock. Yeshua's assembly will come against all the anti-God and anti-Bible religions and worldviews. The rock will be done away with, but Yeshua will build a new foundation. The new foundation will be the faith of Abraham. So maybe it's both. And for us too. 
We look to the rock, and now we have to look to Abraham. And I want to end with a fascinating quote from the Hertz commentary, his eulogy to Abraham. So in Hertz we read, This chapter concludes the biblical account of the first patriarchs. It is difficult indeed because of our lifelong familiarity with the story, rightly to estimate the nobility and grandeur of the personality revealed in these chapters. I love that. He's capturing my feelings after so many years of studying Abraham. Abraham is bigger than we thought. And all of a sudden, he's got the characteristics of what a disciple is, and Jesus is using the very words of what Abraham is. He was the pioneer of the monolithic faith, undazzled by the heathen splendor of Nimrod or Hammurabi. He broke away from the debasing idol worship of his contemporaries and devoted his life to the spread of the world-redeeming truth of the one God of justice and mercy. Listen, he forsook home and family to brave unknown dangers because the voice of God bade him to do so. Throughout his days, he showed the faith in God must manifest itself in implicit and joyful surrender to the divine will. He set an example to his children to sacrifice the dearest things in his life. What are we to say? He hated his life. Sanai, not hated, but put it in second place. That's exactly what Jesus is doing. And if need be life itself, in defense of the spiritual heritage entrusted to their care. While he preached renunciation in the service of God, he practiced loving kindness and truth toward his fellow man. Witness his magnanimity, magnanimity in the treatment of Lot, his fine independence in refusal to accept any of the spoils worn by the men of his household, his benevolence in the reception of strangers, his stand for justice when pleading for the doomed cities, and his all-embracing human pity, which extended even to those who had forfeited all claim to human pity. Finally, the closing stage of his life shows his anxiety that the spiritual treasures he has acquired should be transmitted unimpaired through his son to future generations. Verily, he's the prototype of what the Jew should aim at being. Look unto the rock from whence you were hewn. Look to Abraham your father. So Abraham is the father of us all by faith. We can take a look at this in Galatians 3, 6 through 7. Again, here's Paul teaching us about this. We're to be like him. Jew and Gentile, slave or free, man or woman. Again, Paul teaches on this in Galatians 3, 28 through 29. And so indeed, we should have the characteristics of our spiritual father, Abraham. One picture of the type of faith that Jesus was going to use to establish his congregation. Not a building. Not an organization, not a system, but a group of people that are in the image of Jesus, his disciples. Now you've heard it said, oh, like father, like son. And so, yes, we'd say Abraham's faith and the one true God, the only God, he attained righteousness. So too for us, his sons and his daughters. Let's have the faith like Abraham, the rock upon which Jesus will establish his church. And like father, like son, in lesson 59, we're going to deal with one verse, Genesis 25, verse 11. 
It talks about the fact that God blessed Abraham's son, Isaac. Isaac is the son of Abraham. And the question is, like father, like son? Now, some say that Isaac was really a minor character in the overall scheme of things. Probably one reason some scholars say is that the Torah doesn't pay a lot of attention to Isaac. And lesson 59, we're going to see that this is the opposite. Isaac was truly amazing. And as we see Isaac, so we will see Abraham. As we see Isaac the son, so too do we see the father. So until we get to lesson 59, I definitely wish you God's shalom.